Good morning, everybody. How you doing? Awesome. My name's Eric. I'm uh, the worship pastor here at E3, and I get the privilege of spending a few minutes with you guys this morning. We've been talking about revolution, as Tracy Chapman wrote, little 80s reference, talking about a revolution. I knew that really wasn't going to connect with anybody, but in fact, I told myself, don't say that. But anyway, um, but we've been spending some intentional time talking about this concept of a revolution and what that means for E3 is that uh, we've been trying to look at the ways that our community can learn to be the tangible hand of Christ in Tallahassee, uh, among our community, and beyond, all the way to the other side of the, the world. And we've been going back and forth about, well, how do we seal this, this time together? Because we can't perpetually use this logo for the next, you know, 300 some days of the year or however many is left. So how do we seal this intentional time about talking about, rev- talking about revolution and being the tangible hand of Christ? And we came up with this idea of coming to the Lord's Supper, coming to the Lord's table, to communion. Uh, if you grew up in church, you might know that by different names, but it's essentially communion and sharing the the, um, the elements of the bread and the cup together. So that's what we're going to be moving towards today. But I want to warn you, we're, we're going to be doing it in a different way than what E3 typically does. We're going to be looking at some different things that maybe we haven't looked at before. And um, my prayer is that we would just kind of experience communion and spirit, experience God in sort of a, maybe a way that we haven't before. So if you would Uh, Join me in prayer. We'll just jump in. God, we acknowledge your presence in our midst. Your word says that you inhabit the praises of your people. Your word says that when two or more are gathered in your name, that you are here. So we trust that, Lord. And where you are, God, is holy ground. And so even as we sit drinking coffee or soda, we acknowledge that we're in the presence of a holy God. And Lord, we pray that your spirit and your presence would open our eyes and our ears and our minds and hearts to hear and receive what you would have for us. God, I pray for myself that you would, uh, that you would discipline my mind and, uh, and uh, take my heart to a humble and, and appropriate place, God. Um, thank you for being here. Thank you for the cross and for being our God. Amen. I want to start this morning by saying uh, or confessing that I like to eat. I am blessed that eating in my life happens at least three times a day, sometimes more if I'm lucky. And uh, I have favorite foods, and so I thought it'd be kind of fun to maybe hear from you guys of some of your favorite foods before I share mine. So, in the interest of pizza, what? Thai food, macaroni and cheese. You guys over here really like to eat. I'm not so sure about these people. What about you guys? Cheeseburgers? What? Chocolate. Oh, yeah. Um, Okay, okay, all right. I'm getting really hungry. So um, one of my favorite foods is like fresh, hot bread. I I heart carbohydrates. I heart starches. Um... (laughs) I was, I was uh, when I was younger, my grandmother, I don't know if maybe your moms or grandmothers or 
if you yourselves do this, but my grandmother used to make fresh bread like whenever our family gathered. And uh, me and my dad would, would like huddle in the kitchen like a, you know, a couple of five-year-old boys waiting for the oven to open and, and rushing into the kitchen as they came out of the oven and like the, the, the rolls were so hot, they burned your hands and they burned the insides of your mouth, but we're still just like shoving them in as fast as, because there's nothing better than like bread right out of the oven, right? right. Am I right? Okay. Um, and it got so bad in my family that it got to the point where if we all gathered, this is like a few years back, my nieces and nephews, and we were all sitting somewhere at a table, if there was bread in the meal, it was an understood procedure in my house to start the bread basket immediately to my right and then pass it to the right so that I would be the last person to get the bread so that everybody else would be able to get a little something before it came to me and I worked my little magic on it and made all the rest of the bread disappear. Um, Things have gotten a little bit better as I got older and kind of acknowledged that I can't sit down and eat like eight rolls at dinner. But meals are important, and they are important to the people of God, and that's kind of a crazy thing to to acknowledge. But what we're going to be talking about today is a meal, and a lot of times in the church today, we don't recognize communion as a meal. To us, it's just you know, some wafers and some grape juice or wine, depending on your, what church tradition you may have grown up with. It might be just, you know, you pull some bread off of a loaf. But in the early church, it was a meal. It was taken in the context of a meal with meat and friends and a dinner table. And um, Jesus set it up that way as well. And what communion is, is something that has a fancy church word. It's called a sacrament. And a sacrament is real. The definition of a sacrament is very simple. It is an everyday ordinary thing that symbolizes an extraordinary or spiritual reality. So it's just every, every everyday thing, bread, grape juice. But to the people who understand the story, to us as Christians, this means something different. You know, if you're, it means that for us to remember Jesus' body and the blood of the new covenant. So just to kind of drive this point of what sacraments are, because sacraments are important, I kind of want to expand this point a little bit and talk to you guys about like how sacraments can work in your daily life. Because I have a couple of sacraments in my house or sacramental items, and these have no spiritual significance whatsoever. Let me be clear about that. But they are important and they signify something different to me because they're personal. So this is my first sacramental item. So Watch out, but it, it, it's coming out. So this, this is my first, uh, this is an example of a sacramental item. Now, to, to a lot of you, to most of you guys out here, this is nothing more than the jersey of the six-time Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers. But to me, there is a story. This is more than a jersey. Uh, you see, my parents, um, I... I turned 40 this year, or last year, and uh, they asked me what I wanted, and I told them, you know what I want more than anything else is I want, I want a Steelers jersey with my name on it. So they, they went and they got it. So this isn't a jersey to me. When I take this jersey out 10 years from now, you know, 15 years from now, I'm not going to remember necessarily um, even the Super Bowls. I'm going to remember that my parents took the time 
to have this thing lettered and monogrammed, and they spent their resources on it and gave it to me. This is a sacred item to me because of the story, not just because of the thread and the letters and the colors. Um, Another kind of sacrament that doesn't really have any sort of spiritual significance is is things that athletes do. They are great at sacraments. Um, And what I meant by that is like, have you ever seen athletes warm up or, or prepare for games or do things as they come on the field? Things that have significance to them that get them in the mindset, you know, and the big thing right now is the LeBron thing, you know, the powder and and the clap and that, you know, but athletes do these things, uh, movies in the movies, gladiator, remember his sort of sacramental ritual when he would go into combat, what would he do? He'd reach down, get some earth between his hands. Now, you know, we don't know the exact story of why he did that, but it has significance to him. It was more than just dirt. The last thing I'll share with you this morning that's, a, that's sort of sacred in our house is this. Um, it's a crumpled up letter. It has my son's name on it, Levi. And this is uh, special to me because this letter has, this envelope has never been opened. Um, and I, I don't know exactly what's in it. But I know that it was written uh, from a pastor uh, three or four years ago and a community three or four years ago where Levi was dedicated as a baby. And this letter, this envelope will remain sealed until Levi's baptized. And when he's baptized, he, open, he gets to open the letter and see what's in it. And it's, and it's not um, necessarily sacred because of the, you know, the, the paper or anything. This is sacred because we believe that the prayers, because this is what I think is in here. I think it's a letter that's basically saying, we have prayed for you, Levi. We prayed for you. And, and when you are baptized, it's a fulfillment of a promise. And so what's sacred about this is, is it reminds me of the belief that I believe prayer works. And there was a community that believed in my son and that welcomed him into the world and embraced him when he was dedicated. Now, as a, as a believing community, we don't have a lot of sacraments. Um, as Christians, we really only have two. We celebrate baptism and we celebrate this thing called communion. And I think Jesus kind of wanted it that way. I mean, that was the whole point of him calling us into this wide open space of grace where you know, rituals and ceremonies were good for, for what they did, but they didn't really like, get us any closer to God. They just might have reminded us something. But we have these things, and, um, and I think uh, basically they do serve this purpose of helping us to remember where we came from. Jesus established these in the Gospels. So we're going to start there. I don't know if, if, if you're anything like me and you study the Bible, sometimes it's pretty intimidating, but I can tell you right off the bat that when something occurs often in Scripture, it's a good indication that God finds it important. If you're reading your Bible, you come across like one little passage and you never see it again. God wanted it in the Bible, Absolutely. But if you come across something that's referenced multiple times, you can be like, okay, God really found this important. (laughs) So the first thing I want to tell you about communion is that it occurs in every gospel story. Now, that's that's not a given. There's lots of things that only occur in one gospel, you know, and there's four. But the communion story happens in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And we all uh, may be familiar with the story, maybe you're not, but it goes like this. It's about A.D. 33. Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He goes to Jerusalem with all his disciples. He comes into the city 
Um, and it's nearing Passover, and Jesus is aware, I, I believe, that, that he's going to be betrayed. And he's aware that he's going to be handed over and put on trial. And ultimately, he's going to be found guilty. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be whipped. He's going to be murdered on a cross. So what's he do? He gathers his closest friends, the 12, 12 disciples. They go to a private dining establishment, a room somewhere, and they celebrate the Passover meal. Now, Passover was a sacrament of the Jewish people. It had meaning for them. It helped them remember the exodus, the time in the wilderness, and the promise of what was to come. In the course of that meal, Jesus kind of turns some of those elements on, on their head and says, you know, I am now basically the bread and the cup. They took the cup in the Passover meal, and basically Jesus is saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So <clears throat> he's sort of reinterpreting Passover. But I want to draw your attention to, to two stories that come out of two separate gospels. Because Jesus kind of adds a new dynamic. First, I want to look at the gospel of Luke. The writer says, they began to argue among themselves as to who would be the greatest in the coming kingdom. These are the disciples. And if you're familiar with the disciples, this is totally consistent with them arguing on who's going to be the greatest. Um, I just wonder how, sometimes how many times Jesus rolled his eyes at his, dis anyway. Um, but Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men order their people around, and yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, those who are the greatest should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like a servant. Normally, the master sits at the table and is served by his servants, but not here, for I am your servant. In the Gospel of John, this is recorded. So he got up from the table, this is Jesus, got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel he had around him. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because it is true. And since I, the Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. And I can tell you meals in the ancient world were, were important things in the sense that they really broadcast where people were in status. You know, I don't know how meals function in your house, but in the ancient world, you could tell how important a person was by where they sat, and it was a, it was a done deal person to the right hand of the host was the most important person in the room after the host. Uh, social status was, uh, was broadcast during community meals. And I think one of the things that Jesus is doing right now is he's saying, I'm, going, I'm taking that, that uh, sort of norm of the world and I'm shattering it because I established a kingdom and in the kingdom, the first shall be yeah. And so Jesus takes the opportunity of a community meal and he says, no, no, I am your master. I am your Lord. I am your teacher, but I'm going to serve you. And this is the way it works in my kingdom. So that's what Jesus established. That's what um, God wanted recorded in the scriptures to remind us. 
Now we're going to fast forward a few years from A.D. 33 to A.D. 50. And we're going to leave Jerusalem. We're going to go to Greece. We're going to go to Corinth. Corinth was a city um, that was a Roman colony. It was a place that hosted their version of the Olympic Games, which were second only to the Olympic Games. It was a, it was a fairly important city, but it was kind of a, a unique city. Um, one writer put it this way, that going to Corinth would kind of be like going to a frontier town from, say, Boston in the 1800s. The modern-day version would probably be like going to what stays in what happens in, stays in, what happens in Corinth, stays in Corinth. It was a crazy place. Um, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was a normal place. People had jobs, but morality was a little bit looser there. Rules were kind of a moving target. But this guy um, in AD 50 shows up. His name is Paul. He used to be called Saul. He was from Jerusalem. He used to be a, a leader in the religious establishment, he used to seek out these followers of Jesus, have them imprisoned, have them beaten, have them killed. But uh, then this Jesus turned the tables on Paul, turned his life upside down, blinded him for a little while, and then he emerged with a new name called Paul, and he's going around the Mediterranean starting these little churches. So he comes to Corinth, and he starts a church a little church. And I'm, when I mean little, I mean little. Uh, think of your living room. That's how big the church was because the church at this time didn't have a, any buildings. So whatever could be fit in your living room, that was your church. 15 people, 20 people, maybe if you were really wealthy, 30 or 40. But he starts this community, and in this community, one of the things that he sets up is this thing called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. Once a week, he says, Gather together, have a meal. In this meal, you're going to have bread, you're going to have wine. Wine was not a common thing back then. It was for special occasions. And in the meal, basically Paul says that you're supposed to say some certain words or, or at least remember certain words. And it goes like this. Paul reminds the church, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So he sets that up and he stays with the Corinthians a while and then he moves on because he's got other churches to plant. That's what God wanted him to do. But as he's traveling, he begins to hear troubling things coming out of Corinth. People are coming to him and going like, man, that church you've established, crazy stuff's going on there. And if you've never read the book of 1 Corinthians, read it because uh, there were crazy things going on in the church of Corinth. They were doing their best, but they were a little bit rough around the edges, probably in many ways like a lot of us are. Um, but he hears about these things. And then, lo and behold, the Corinthian church sends Paul a letter. And we don't have a record of this letter. We can just infer. But he gets a letter from him, and they're asking him questions. Hey, Paul, tell us about some more aspects of God. Tell us about 
uh, what kind of meat we're supposed to eat or avoid. Paul, tell us about um, just different topics. And so Paul has a letter. He's got these rumors. So he sits down, and he writes them a letter back. And that letter that we have back is the letter of 1 Corinthians. It's a response to rumors that are going on. It's a response to questions he's been asked. So what does Paul have to say to the Corinthian church about some of the stuff that's going on? Well, let's, let's get right to the heart of the matter. Paul says, now, when I mention this next issue, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm is done when you meet together. First of all, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. If you're wondering if if that sounds like sarcasm, it is. (laughs) It's not the Lord's Supper you are concerned about when you come together, for I am told that some of you hurry to eat your own ritual meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly do not. I've been journeying through the book of 1 Corinthians for about four or five months now. Um, My wife and I started a Bible study, and, and we just decided to kind of focus on 1 Corinthians. And so um, it's been a really a blessing in my life to dig into Scripture in just a really deep way. So this is kind of the pause to say, like, if you've ever been on the fence of, like, wow, is the Bible important or does it help to study Scripture? It does. It does. God will reveal uh, awesome new things about himself and about his people if you just take the time and study this book that he's given us. Uh, Unpause. So what was going on? I mean, we know what wasn't going on because Paul tells us it's not the Lord's Supper. You think you know, but you don't know. You think you're coming and you're sharing this bread and you think you're participating in this meal. Paul says no. Well, why? Here's Here's what we think was going on. Like I said, the church met in a home, maybe a wealthy person's home, and uh These people were coming, and they were coming from all walks of life. They were rich people, poor people, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free. We we know this because this is who Paul addressed his letters to. And probably what was happening when they were celebrating the Lord's table is someone had to buy the food. And in these communities, there were wealthy people, and there were poor people. So a lot of people think, historians, theologians, Based on what they know of the Bible, based on what they know of that time and the customs in Greece, they would say, well, possibly what was happening is that the wealthy people would say, you know what, it's in our house, me and these other wealthy people, we've got the resources, we'll buy the food. We'll buy the food for the Lord's Supper. So we'll buy the meat, we'll buy the wine, we'll buy everything. Everyone else has to show up. At the very, at the very least, they were sharing resources, and so everybody would bring something, but still, If you're not wealthy, I mean, what do you have to bring, you know, compared to, you know, a a real estate magnet, you know, who can afford, you know, six bottles of wine and three turkeys or whatever. But basically, they would be meeting in somebody's home. So paint this picture. Um, It's the day of of the, the, 
the Lord's Supper. Maybe you're a wealthy person and you've bought a bunch of food. Because wealthy people tend to have freedom of schedules. Now, I don't mean to blanket statements, but um, I don't know if you've ever had a minimum wage job and tried to just like knock off early. You know, be like, hey, yeah, I'm out of here. I'll see you later. Uh, or be like, you know what, I, I, I'll get that stuff done tomorrow. If you have a, a minimum wage job, that's not going to fly with your boss. At least it didn't when I was, had a minimum wage job. I don't know if things have changed. And what's more is that some of the people in this community were slaves. So they don't, they don't have any freedom of schedule. So you got this picture of, of some wealthy people in the church sitting in front of this spread. And they're hanging out talking about whatever wealthy people in Corinth talk about. And one of them looks up maybe and goes like, man, those grapes look so good. That's <laughs> so one of them takes a, a grape, maybe a little bite of cheese, maybe reach out, pull some skin off the turkey, eat that. Then maybe somebody else does, takes a sip of wine. And before long, this small group of people, before the rest of the church has shown up, they're having their own little feast. They bought the food, it's there, nobody else is there. And so then, imagine this, uh, you're a slave, or you had to work doing manual labor all day, and you finally got off work, and you rushed to your community, you rushed to these people, these 15, 20 other people that you call brothers and sisters, and you walk in to celebrate the Lord's table, and what you walk in on is an empty buffet table with nothing left but bones and other members of your community rolling around drunk and stuffed and taking naps because of the tryptophan and the turkey. I don't know. I keep saying turkey. I don't know if they said turkey. How humiliating that must have been. I mean, have you ever walked in on a party that you were supposed to be invited on but to, but somehow it feels like you were on the outside? especially a party that was supposed to be signified by the Savior of the world saying, no, the greatest among you have to serve. If you, if you are privileged, you need to bow down and wash somebody else's feet. You know, the questions that must have raised in people's minds, like, is this, what was church supposed to be like? So what does Paul say to do? A little further on in the chapter, Paul says, So dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home, so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. He basically says, look, eat at home. Don't call it the Lord's Supper. Just fill yourself up at home and come so you can wait and be together and show unity and show service to the rest of your community. So now we return to our table. <clears throat> and quite frankly, my first question is, well, great, but it's not my problem. We don't have a meal. I don't think anybody comes to church on Communion Sunday going like, oh, man, I just can't wait to get at the wafers. <sighs> I'm so hungry. We come, and, uh, and I think we ask ourselves, well, I mean, that was Corinth. What's that have to do with me now? I felt the same way. But years ago, I was uh, riding somewhere, public transportation somewhere, and I was a book, somebody had given me a book. And I really wasn't that excited about reading it, because I don't know if you've ever gotten a book, and it's like really published like long time ago, and you're like, man, I just don't know if this is going to be relevant. It doesn't have any colored pictures or anything like that. 
It was written by a theologian from Yale University. And uh, it was kind of about the economy of God and, and, and the poor and the way God's people should respond to the poor. And I was reading through it, and I came across this sentence that just like drove a, a, a stake into my soul. The author's name is Dr. Ron Sider, and he wrote this, that as long as any Christian anywhere in the world is hungry, the communion celebration of all Christians everywhere in the world is imperfect. I was like, what? One more time, as long as any Christian anywhere in the world is hungry, the communion celebration of all Christians everywhere in the world is imperfect. So let me just kind of say what that meant to me. That means like, you know, we tend to come and, and we take our, our wafer and we take our cup and we go. But what this guy is saying is that we need to think of ourselves as a Corinthian church that's rushing forward and taking our bread and taking our cup while the rest of the world is going hungry. I'll, let me unpack that a little bit because that's kind of heavy. Let's do it this way. How many churches did Jesus establish? One church, okay? In, this, in a sense, like, E3 is a local expression of Jesus' church. Like, St. Peter's is a local expression of Jesus' church. Genesis is a local expression. But spiritually speaking and theologically speaking, there is only one church. And because some of us are privileged to have three meals a day on a table. This guy was basically saying, when we, come to this, when we come to the table, we should be pausing and to think about the ways that we are filled up and drunk when the rest of our brothers and sisters are starving. Let's look at what Paul has to say, just so we can kind of be clear Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this, we all eat from one loaf, showing that we are, what? One body. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only, say it, one body. So it is with the body of Christ. He writes a letter to the church in Galatia. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. You are in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, the church at Ephesus. For Christ himself has made peace between us Jews and you Gentiles by making us all. His purpose was to make peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new person from the two groups together as one body. Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death. I grew up in a church and we would say this thing called uh, the Apostles' Creed. And creeds were invented by the early church fathers so that Christians everywhere could just kind of establish a baseline set of agreements. So like you would use a creed to say like, hey, do you agree with all this stuff? And if you agreed with it and this person over here, you say, hey, well, guess what? We're all Christians, you know? It was a way to level the playing field. So I grew up in a church and we used to say this thing. And we'd say it almost every Sunday, I think, in church. It had this phrase in there, I believe in the holy Catholic church. And I was like, whoa, whoa, I'm not a Catholic. I'm Methodist. What's that mean? What's that mean? Well, what Catholic means in that context is universal. So from the very get-go, the early church would say, you have to believe that no matter how many local expressions of one of the body there is, there is, spiritually speaking, only one body. 
of Jesus. So the question is, wait for, like Paul says, to wait. And Jesus says to serve. Wait for whom? Serve who? And I think what Paul and Jesus would say is like, we need to wait for the body. We need to serve the body before we come to the table. So if that's true, if, we need to, if we're supposed to wait for and serve the body, maybe we need to wait and serve a believing sister in Frenchtown whose house is falling apart and water just runs in every time it rains because the roof is so torn apart. If we're really just one body, maybe we need to wait and serve believing brothers and sisters in Gadsden County just 30 minutes away that has like some of the highest poverty rates and worst living conditions in the whole state of Florida. If we're really one body, maybe we should wait and serve believing families in Lee County, Kentucky, in Appalachia, where 57% of that county makes less than $15,000 a year. If we're really only one body, maybe we need to wait and serve believing children in Africa who are scared that they're going to be abducted and sold into slavery. Believing children in Guatemala who are just wondering when their next meal is going to come. Wait and serve. Last year, I was, I was uh, with a ministry in Gadsden County that takes high school kids and they take them there for the whole week and they work on people's houses and they, they share lives together and they try to just do whatever they can to make these people's physical life a little bit more comfortable. And we got to the end of the week and it was sort of a time of worship and sharing and this young woman, this young, um, this young girl st- stood up and she, would, she said, you know, I, I've just been thinking all week that we have so much stuff and they don't have anything. That we have such nice houses, and their houses are just falling apart. And part of me was so proud of her that she recognized that. But part of my heart was also breaking because I wanted to tell her, to the, ex- to the extent that you're serving believing people, there is no we, or there is no us and them. There is only we. So it's not that, it's not that, this church over here has nice stuff. and No. It's a brother and sister mentality. It's a family of God. And part of the family is lacking in resources. And that's important to the heart of God. So today, I think we need to wait. I think today, we don't come to the table I think today we, we look at what Paul said, what Jesus said, and we acknowledge the parts of the body that are suffering. Can we help everybody? Can we run out to Frenchtown right now or Gadsden County? No. But I would ask you guys, like, is there an area of your life where, where you're holding back? We have people in Benin, Africa right now. We're sending a team to Guatemala. We're in Frenchtown every week. There is opportunities to help people. Now, is this, is this guilt? No. 
and it's not my prayer to cause that. But a preacher once, once told me that the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And sometimes uh, we get to comfortable spots in our lives and we need to be reminded that the kingdom of God is a radical place where the first are last. And what we're talking about here is just a way to live in the kingdom. So as the band comes up, we're going to do something that we don't do a lot of here at E3, and we're going to take just a couple minutes of confession. Confession is not a, a way to make you feel really bad about yourself. It's just a pause to say, you know what, God, my life, uh, my life may need some adjustment in this area, and I agree that you have a standard. So um, what I'd like us all to do is, if, if it's all possible, to you know, so that we, no one feels weird or guilty, if we would just all bow our heads. And uh, we're going to spend just a couple minutes of just silent confession, and then I'm going to guide us through a, a sort of guided prayer at the end, and then Trace is going to lead us in a response to it. Just pray as your heart feels like. <laughs>